Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. The most significant reason for the success of the First Crusade was Muslim disunity. From 750 to the 10th century, the Empire of Islam had been ruled by the caliphs of the Abbasid family, the commanders of the faithful and the descendants of Muhammad, who wielded spiritual and secular authority and maintained a glorious court in Baghdad. During the 10th century, however, the Abbasids' grip on their enormous realm had faltered. Beginning in the empire's outlying areas, governors of provinces and cities asserted their independence from Baghdad. At the same time, the Abbasid family frequently fell into feuding and civil war over the issue of succession to the caliphate. By 1050, the Abbasid caliphs had dwindled to little more than figureheads, dominated by their courtiers, and their rule extended barely beyond the surroundings of Baghdad. As Abbasid power waned, a rival caliphate emerged, the Fatimids. Followers and champions of the Ismaili branch of Shia Islam, the Fatimids emerged in the Maghrib, Muslim North Africa, at the beginning of the 10th century. In 969, they seized control of Egypt, one of the wealthiest and most populous parts of the Islamic world. The Fatimids then expanded into Palestine, capturing Jerusalem in 969. Until 1099, they fought fiercely with the Sunni Muslim powers for control of the Middle East. But another, and even more consequential result of the decline of the Abbasid caliphs was the eruption into the Islamic world of a powerful new force, the Turks. Nomads from the steppes, the vast belt of grasslands that covered Eurasia from Hungary to Korea, the Turks were matchless horsemen and magnificent fighting soldiers. The Muslims had first encountered them when they reached the Eurasian steppes during Islam's great age of expansion. Impressed by the Turks' prowess, the caliphs recruited them as Mamluks, or slave soldiers. Beginning with the caliph al-Mutazim, who reigned from 892 to 902, Turkic Mamluks formed the cutting edge of the Abbasid armies. Al-Mutazim constructed a palace complex at Samara, near Baghdad, as a barracks for these elite troops. Every power of the Muslim world rushed to copy the caliphs by taking some Turks into their service. In the 10th century, the Turks began moving in great numbers from the steppes and into the settled lands of the Islamic world. Exactly why this great migration occurred is unclear. One theory is that the Turks were driven south by climate change. Cooling temperatures on the steppes forced the nomads to seek warmer lands with better pastures for their herds. Most Turks were only newly converted to Islam. Many were still pagans. In language, appearance, and customs, the Turks were almost as alien to the Arabs and the other native peoples of the Islamic world as the European Franks. The Crusades are therefore the story of two different sets of invaders of the Middle East, the Crusaders and the Turkic nomads. The Turks first carved out dominions in the east of the Islamic world, the Karakhanids in Central Asia and the Ghaznavids in Afghanistan and the borderlands of India. In the middle of the 11th century, a loose federation of Oghuz Turk tribes and war bands under the leadership of the Seljuk family conquered the region of Khorasan in eastern Iran. 
the Seljuk warlord Tugril Bey recognized the weakness at the heart of Islam. He led his followers westward, conquering the rest of Iran and then Iraq. In 1055, with the assistance of the Turkic Mamluk warriors already there, Tugril seized control of Baghdad and reduced the Abbasid Caliph to a religious figurehead under his control. For himself, Tugril took the title of Sultan, or Power. With the establishment of the Seljuk Sultanate of Baghdad, the Middle East and Anatolia lay open to Turkic invasion. Turkic tribes, some only loosely under Seljuk control, poured into the Anatolian provinces of the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine effort to stop them led to the disastrous defeat of Manzikert at the hands of Tugril's successor, Alp Arslan, in 1071. Other Turks pushed into Syria and Palestine. In 1073, a vassal of the Seljuks, Atsiz, captured Jerusalem from the Fatimids of Egypt. For the next nine centuries, until the fall of the Ottoman Empire in 1919, the Middle East and Anatolia would be ruled by Turks. During the 1070s and 1080s, the Seljuks created an empire that stretched from Anatolia to the borders of China. But this empire was never a centralized state. The Seljuk sultans parceled out their vast realm to their emirs, their leading Turkic generals and commanders, in the form of Iktas. An Ikta was a territory that an emir governed in the name of the sultan and from which the emir had the right to appropriate taxes. The sultans retained ultimate control of the Iktas and were able to reassign them to new holders at will and at any time. In 1092, the Seljuk Empire fell into crisis as the death of Sultan Malik Shah sparked a ruinous civil war of succession among various Seljuk Maliks, or princes. These princes fought each other for possession of the Seljuk core territories around Baghdad and in Iran. Syria and Palestine became a neglected region, just one frontier among many. With the retreat of the sultan's power and authority, the Seljuk Amirs usurped control of their Iktas. In effect, they became independent warlords controlling their own mini-states. The goal of the warlords became the preservation or expansion of their new domains. Their main opponents were other warlords. In such circumstances, the Turkic warlords were unwilling or unable to present a united front against invaders. The Fatimids of Egypt took advantage of the fragmentation of the western provinces of the Seljuk Empire by retaking Jerusalem in 1098. But the main beneficiaries of Seljuk fragmentation were the Crusaders, who captured Jerusalem less than a year after the city had fallen to the Fatimids. After the formation of the Crusader states, the Turkic warlords became the most dangerous enemies of the Franks. The Emirates of Aleppo and Damascus bordered the Principality of Antioch and the Kingdom of Jerusalem, respectively. The Turkic tribes of the Jazeera, the region between the Euphrates and Tigris rivers, menaced the county of Edessa. Further east, the city of Mosul became the center of another warlord state that would be active in fighting the Franks. The power of the warlords was based on their command of armies of Turkic horse archers. The Turks were products of a military system vastly different from that of their Frankish enemies or even the Arab Muslims. Christendom and Islam were both sedentary agricultural societies in which the overwhelming mass of people had to devote their time and labor to growing food. 
In such societies, warriors were either part-time militiamen who were only able to leave their farms for a limited period, or a small elite supported by the work of everyone else. In the steppe nomad society of the Turks, every man was potentially a warrior. Moreover, the rigors and requirements of everyday life on the steppe made the Turks natural fighters. The aridity and harsh climate of the Eurasian steppes make them inimical to agriculture, but suitable for the raising and herding of animals, such as sheep, goats, and above all, horses. The native inhabitants of the steppe became nomadic pastoralists who herded their livestock from pasture to pasture. Male nomads learned to ride in childhood and then spent most of their adult lives on horseback. Horsemanship therefore became second nature. Nomads had to drive, control, and guard their herds of hundreds, if not thousands, of animals. They also supplemented herding with hunting. Herding and hunting were both communal activities that taught nomads discipline as well as acting in coordinated groups. Finally, violence was a feature of everyday life on the steppe, as bands and clans raided each other's herds as well as tried to take over pastures. The life skills developed by these practices and experiences translated almost seamlessly into warfare. Turkic nomads needed little formal training to turn them into soldiers. The nomads' everyday gear was also superbly suited for war. The nomads' mount, the steppe horse, was smaller and lighter than the war horses bred by sedentary societies. But it was also fast, highly maneuverable, possessed enormous stamina, and could subsist entirely on grass. Traditionally, steppe nomads employed strings of horses to give them sustained speed and extended endurance in battle. Huge numbers of horses were a trademark of the Mongol armies of Chinggis Khan and his successors. However, neither Christian nor Arab Muslim sources mention Turkic warriors having several horses. Perhaps the more limited grazing lands available in the Middle East reduced the number of mounts each nomad could employ at a time. The nomad's main weapon was one of the deadliest of the pre-gunpowder age, the composite recurve bow, sometimes simply called a horse bow. The nomad's bow was made from animal sinew glued to a wood core, in turn glued to an inner layer of horn. The bow itself was short and curved opposite to the draw. This combination of geometry and materials made for a bow of unparalleled power that was short enough to be used on horseback. Historians estimate that the nomad composite recurve bow had a draw of 100 to 130 pounds and a range of 300 to 500 meters. Nomads learned to use the bow as boys, then practiced continually with it. In the 2nd century, the Chinese historian Sima Qian observed that among the steppe people called the Xiongnu, the little boys start out by learning to ride sheep and shoot birds and rats with a bow and arrow, and when they get a little older, they shoot foxes and hares, which are used for food. As a result of this lifelong practice, nomads could shoot arrows rapidly and with lethal accuracy while riding their horses at full gallop. Some texts suggest that nomad archers shot their arrows at the precise moment when all four of their galloping horses' hooves were in the air, thus ensuring their aim would not be thrown off by their mount's movements. Arab observers were enormously impressed by Turkic archery. Some peoples of the Middle East, including the Arabs, had a tradition of horse archery. However, Middle Eastern archers shot while their mounts were either stationary or walking. Not so the Turks. In the 9th century, the writer Al-Jahiz 
admiringly observed that the Turk can shoot at beasts, birds, hoops, men, sitting quarry, dummies, and birds on the wing, and do so at full gallop, to fore or rear, to left or to right, upwards or downwards, loosing ten arrows before the Arab can knock one. The army of a Turkic warlord consisted of two distinct groups of horse archers. The first group was the Askar, a standing force of paid professional soldiers, including both Mamluks and free Turks. Warlords used the resources of their domains to equip their Askars with armor and effective hand-to-hand weapons. The Askar troops retained all of the traditional horse archer skills and tactics from their nomadic background, but combined them with greater discipline and better capabilities in close combat. The Askar of a typical Turkic warlord state numbered 1,000 to 2,000 men. A handful of states could field much larger forces. By the 1170s, the Askar of Mosul was 6,000 strong. The second and much more numerous group of horse archers in a Turkic warlord army consisted of mercenary nomad warriors. Steppe nomads were continually filtering down from the Eurasian steppes into the borderlands and war zones of the Middle East, arriving both as small war bands and entire tribes. When a warlord went to war, he reinforced his Askar with as many nomad warriors as he could afford to hire. In contrast to the Askar troops, most of these warriors were unarmored or at best lightly armored, and armed only with their bows and a supplementary melee weapon, such as a spear, club, mace, or battle axe. They were also undisciplined, unruly, and served primarily for plunder. Nevertheless, the nomad mercenaries were highly effective and fearsome fighters. Nomad warriors fresh off the steppes were available in large numbers. A hint of this is found in an anecdote from the Arab warrior, diplomat, and poet Usama ibn Mudkid, a scion of the Banu Munkid dynasty that ruled the fortress city of Shizar in northern Syria. Usama saw service with some of the most prominent Turkic warlords, as well as with the Fatimid Caliphate of Egypt. His memoir, The Book of Contemplation, provides a fascinating Muslim perspective on the Crusades and the Crusader states. In 1150, Usama was dispatched by the Fatimids to the great warlord Nur al-Din, then ruler of Aleppo and much of northern Syria, on a mission to hire Turkic mercenaries. After much negotiation, Nur al-Din gave Usama permission to take into Egyptian service any nomads who had been rejected by Nur al-Din's own army. In a matter of days, Usama was able to hire 860 Turkic horse archers, that so many of these fighting men were still available at a particular moment in one corner of Syria, even after the local warlords had recruited as many of them as they needed, suggests that the nomadic manpower pool was very deep indeed. When campaigning in enemy country, a Turkic army unleashed its horsemen to raid over a wide area. Nomads were only interested in cultivated lands as a source of plunder. Turkic raiders therefore laid waste to entire rural communities, taking away anything they could carry on their horses and burning the rest. Able-bodied civilians were captured to be sold as slaves or held for ransom. Anyone considered of no value was massacred. For warlords, these raids could fulfill important strategic purposes. Raids intimidated and struck fear in the enemy. Moreover, as agrarian people, the Franks could not stand to see their farms and fields devastated. 
Raids could therefore provoke them into fighting a battle at a disadvantage. Repeated over several campaigns, large-scale raiding wrecked the Franks' economy, eroding their powers of resistance. In battle, Turkic horse archers employed a devastatingly effective combination of dispersion, mobility, and firepower. A Turkic army deployed and moved in loose swarms, which would use their superior speed and agility to outflank and surround an enemy force, then attack it from all sides. The horse archers would surge forward in squadrons, galloping at their enemies and showering them with arrows. If the foe charged them, the Turks would retreat, still shooting at their pursuers as they did so. A favorite Turkic trick was the feigned retreat, in which they pretended to flee only to suddenly turn and launch a surprise attack. Only after their hit-and-run tactics had depleted the enemy's numbers, diminished their morale, disrupted their formations, and degraded their cohesion would the Turks charge in to finish them off in close combat. For Frankish soldiers, the consequences of a Turkic victory were often harrowing. High-ranking prisoners were usually spared for ransom. Yet even they were subject to brutal mistreatment, bound in chains, humiliated, beaten, deprived of food and water. Low-ranking captives were lucky if they were spared to be sold into slavery. Turks often slaughtered the Franks who fell into their hands. For nomads, severed heads tied to their saddles demonstrated their prowess. But a more practical and long-lasting trophy was a bundle of scalps. After annihilating the army of Antioch at the Battle of Ager Sanguinis in 1119, the Turks took 500 prisoners. Half were scalped. Walter the Chancellor, a high-ranking survivor, vividly and gruesomely describes how these unfortunates suffered agonizing death with the skin flayed from their living and half-severed heads. As soon as the Crusaders encountered the Turks, they were impressed by their strange yet highly potent way of war. One Frank wrote that the Turks were not weighed down with armor like our people, and because they were more lightly armed, they were often able to inflict much greater damage and injury on our people. The Turks are almost unarmed, only carrying a bow and a club bristling with sharp teeth, and a sword. They also have a reedy spear with an iron tip and a light dagger. If they are hotly pursued a long way, they flee on very fast horses. There are none nimbler in the world with the swiftest gallop like the flight of swallows. Albert of Aachen, a chronicler of the First Crusade, gives a specific example of how deadly the Turks could be, even in retreat. Following the bloody battle of Dorylium, the crusaders were pursuing the defeated Turks. A French knight, Gerard of Kerzy, spotted a Turk on a nearby hill, couched his lance, and charged. The Turk, suddenly turned and shot an arrow that punched through the crusader's shield and chainmail armor and pierced his liver. As the knight lay dying, the Turk made off with his horse. A Turkic warlord army could be lethal on campaign and in pitched battle. It was a force long on speed, agility, and firepower. Yet it was far from invincible. As we'll see, the Frankish armies of the crusader states developed effective countermeasures against horse archers. In addition, warlord armies suffered significant operational and strategic limitations because of their nomad mercenaries all-consuming lust for plunder. On campaign, Turkic warlords had to allow their mercenaries to raid and loot. 
an alert and astute Frankish commander could take advantage of the resulting scattering of the foe's troops to force a Turkic army to fight at a disadvantage. Saladin himself suffered a crushing defeat at the Battle of Montgisar in 1077 when he allowed the bulk of his army to disperse too widely. Nomads were willing to remain in the field for only a brief period before they returned to their families and herds. If a campaign went on too long and offered too little plunder as compensation, nomads would simply go home. Nomads were also loath to risk themselves or their most precious goods, their horses, against especially determined resistance. A Turkic army had to win quickly and with as few losses as possible. The nomads' hunger for plunder could create headaches for their warlord employers even when matters were going well. If nomads gathered too much plunder during their raiding, they might decide they had reaped all of a campaign's rewards and quit early. A Turkic army could disband prematurely before it could bring the enemy's field force to battle. Nomads could even short-circuit a victory. In 1104, a Seljuk Turk army crushed the combined hosts of the Principality of Antioch and the County of Edessa at the Battle of Haran. But the Frankish remnants were able to disengage because different Turkic contingents fell out over the division of the spoils, particularly the prisoners who had been taken for enslavement or ransom. By the time the Turkic commanders had restored order, the Franks had managed to get away. Steve Tibble, one of the finest historians of crusader warfare, pithily sums up armies dependent on large contingents of Turkic nomads as always tactically dangerous but rarely strategically fatal. Finally, the Turkic warlord statelets had serious strategic shortcomings in their own right when fighting the Franks. Individual Turkic regimes, including even relatively powerful ones, such as Aleppo, Damascus, and Mosul, could not decisively defeat their Frankish opponents. A warlord simply did not have the resources to build up a sufficiently large Askar and hire enough nomad mercenaries to create a force that could overwhelm and occupy a crusader state. Moreover, the bitter internecine rivalries among the warlords prevented them from acting in concert. What was needed was for a single warlord to reimpose unity on all of Muslim Syria and take command of the military resources of all of the warlord states. 